Risk is a tricky thing. We like to think we understand it, but when it gets down to brass tacks, it can be harder to wrap your brain around things like acceptable or unacceptable risk. How do you define it? How do people understand risk? The COVID-19 pandemic has only highlighted the trouble we sometimes have understanding risk. Communicating risk is a focus of this episode of Stats and Stories, where we explore the statistics behind the stories and the stories behind the statistics. I'm Rosemary Pennington. Stats and Stories is a production of Miami University's Departments of Statistics and Media, Journalism, and Film, as well as the American Statistical Association. Joining me is regular panelist John Baylor, Chair of Miami Statistics Department, Richard Campbell of Media, Journalism, and Film is away. Our guest today is Baruch Fischoff. Fischoff is the Howard Hines University professor in the Department of Engineering and Public Policy and Institute for Politics and Strategy at Carnegie Mellon University. Fischoff's a member of the National Academy of Sciences and of the National Academy of Medicine and past president of the Society for Judgment and Decision Making and of the Society for Risk Analysis. He was founding chair of the Food and Drug Administration Risk Communication Advisory Committee and chaired the National Research Council. Council Committee on Behavioral and Social Science Research to Improve Intelligence Analysis for National Security. His research focuses on judgment and decision-making, including risk perception and risk analysis. Fischoff is the author of a number of books and articles on the subject, including Acceptable Risk and Risk a Very Short Introduction. Baruch, I apologize for the truncated short introduction to you, but thank you so much for being here today. Thanks for having me. How did risk become a focus for you? Well, I studied decision-making. I have an undergraduate degree in mathematics, a PhD in psychology, and the niche that, uh, that I found that, is where, that takes advantage of, of both of them is that I feel like I can understand what are the facts as produced by statisticians, risk analysts, econometricians, and others, as well as understand something about the audience and try to bring the two of them together. So let, let's let's deconstruct your career a little bit here. So so what exactly is risk? How would you de- how do you define risk? That, that actually turns out to be one of the major sort problems in communication is that risk can mean different things to different people and if they're still using the ostensible well, they're still using if, if if we you and I are using the common language term of risk but you mean different things uh I'm thinking about short-term, you're thinking about Mm long-term, I'm thinking about morbidity, you're thinking about mortality, I'm worrying about stress, you're really worrying about economic value, and we're trying to decide what are the big risks and how much effort it's worth putting into them. Uh, We're not going to reach agreement. Sometimes we think about the goal of good risk communication as fewer but better conflicts. That is, we shouldn't get into fights because we're disagree because we're talking about different things but if there are places where we really have different interests or we have different views of the facts such as might be resolved by better evidence then it's good for us to uh, to know that and try to resolve them so can can you give a give you, you gave a couple of things there sort of examples of I, I often find that the distinction between risks and hazards are things that people will sometimes you know get get mixed up. You know, so, you know, it, it, you know, the, the, I, I've often seen the definition of risk thinking about the probability of some some bad thing happening and the, the hazard being the input into determining whether something might happen. So the, the hazard might be in, the, in our current world is is this uh, this uh, this covid this the covid-19 exposure. 
And then, as you said, there's different outcomes that might be, the probability so of different the, outcomes the, vary. I would say the most so common can, nomenclature Can you help with is, kind of expanding is, is a little bit on jargon, that description? Scientists produce jargon because they <laughs> want to use in a precise, precise way terms that are used loosely in society, like, like risk. So most people, most scientists talk about the, the problem, the material problem uh, as the hazard, and that could be tornadoes or uh, hazardous waste facilities or, or a pandemic disease, and a risk is a measure. And in the jargon, you would say, well, the risk is socially constructed, that we need to decide what is a risk, which is what it is that we, that we care about. And typically, that risk will have some probability of occurring and some magnitude of, of, of occurring. And if you and I agree on, uh, you, you and I agree on what outcomes matter, that is, are we worried about economic value uh, impacts? Are we worried about, about the disruption of schools, uh, of, of children's schooling? Then we can talk about this. We're talking about the same outcome. And then we can turn to risk analysts, statisticians to figure out what the probabilities are of those outcomes occurring. I was reading an article you wrote about sort of risk and its relationship to COVID. And there was a line that I that stuck out to me in your conclusions, the first sentence where you say risk decisions are never about one risk alone. Could you talk a little bit about sort of what you are suggesting there? And maybe you could relate it back to COVID since that's what the article was about. Well, so there are people who argue that we have two risks that we're looking at, sort of simple, simplifying, we're looking at the health risk and the economic risk. And in fact, both of those are, are risks. They're different. Um, where the science can help, again, this is where we turn to statisticians and those who you, uh, who, who you train, is to find out what the relationships are between those two risks. So there are people who claim I, I, that, well, it's either one or the other, and there are people who claim, well, actually, they go together, that if people are uncomfortable going out because of disease risk, then they're going to be uncomfortable shopping, uncomfortable attending public events, perhaps appropriately so. So if you don't control the disease, then you, don't, you can't protect the, protect the economy. So there's two risks at mm -hmm. stake, and, and it requires evidence to decide what their relationship is. So, you know, you've, you've looked at lots of different types of, of risks, and you, you've mentioned here just recently about this idea of the health versus the economic risk comparison. And one of the things that, that seems really challenging in any kind of decisions with, with risk is, is this issue of the uncertainty that's part of it. That, that when, you, when you talk about mm -hmm. the kids not being able to attend school in person, you know, what, even, even trying to describe what outcomes are the consequence of that is really difficult and how how many will be impacted and what what will that impact look like i mean so 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 in essence i mean this is under this larger umbrella of of just trying to describe or characterize these experiences in the face of this uncertainty so so how do you help people talk about these these types of decisions and and under this this really fuzzy cloudy sense of really all all the way risk plays out i think that what we want to do for other people is what we would want to be done for ourselves. So if I were a parent, still a parent with small kids, I would want to know what's the best 
statistical evidence regarding these impacts on kids' schooling, recognizing that there's a lot of uncertainty because this is an unusual situation, that there will be population variability because some school districts are coping better and some parents are able to, to cope better. Um, but somebody has studied resilience, and I'd like to know whether these are big effects, weak effects, um, uh -huh. To what extent will some kids look back on this as one of the best periods in their lives because they've gotten to spend so much time with their parents and others because of their circumstances will have have a big gap in their education that the school system is not able to do. So I'd like to know what the best statistical evidence is. And if all you can tell me is we really don't know, either because we haven't studied it in this particular situation or because we've studied it and we have a an ambiguous uh, message. And second, I would like to understand what the science is. That is, I would like to have a mental model of what's going on here. Because I, you know, I've I had three kids and, you know, I have my own intuitive theory of child development. I probably, actually, I've never taken a course in developmental psychology. <laughs> I didn't go PhD in, in psychology. So I have my own intuitive theory. Certainly does, doesn't cover this area. So Tell me something about kids that I don't know so that I can pick it up and apply the general science. So I want, I want the two. I want the number, even if it says we don't really know. And then I want a theory that I can use that will give credibility to the number. If you say, you're a scientist and we don't really know what's going on, well, tell me why you don't know. Mm -hmm. and, you know and then I'd like to be feel competent to following to follow what's going on in my world i'd like to be able to follow the follow the debate and so that i'm growing into this situation so i'm you know you're empowering me both by telling me what the science is and making me a better intuitive scientist which we all have to be what advice would you give for journalists right now who are covering these stories, right? Which it seems like every day there are different stories about the risks of sending kids back to school, about opening businesses or closing businesses. Reporting risk is always difficult for journalists for many reasons, but it seems very heightened and very difficult now. What advice would you have for reporters covering this? Well, first thing I would say is to have confidence in the audience. I think people often appear to be confused by risks because they haven't give, been given half a chance to understand them. That there's a cacophonic environment, out, out media environment there. They're watching TV shows whose job, it, whose expertise is in confusing them and riling their emotions so that they, or, that they, or, that they will stay on past the commercial break. So it, it's tough for people. So people often look less competent than they actu actually are. The messages are often so muddled, even when people try to get it right, that you can't actually understand it, that, that people, they're often journalists or scientists, are convinced that, pe that the lay public is innumerate. Mm -hmm. As a result, they don't give them the numbers. And then you hear things, this is probable, this is possible, this is a rare event, it's probably not going to happen, it'll happen soon. And... People will interpret that differently. They'll disagree with one another about how soon the vaccine is going to be here because they haven't been given half a chance. So, you know, give people the information that they need in order to make the informed choices, which is both what are the numbers? 
as best you can give me them? And then how does this part of the world work? You know, when I was I was reading one of your articles that the, the where you're talking about the idea of risk communication steps, it seemed like part of it maybe even addressed some of what, what Rosemary just, just raised. This issue of, you know, when you, as part of your four steps of these risk communication steps, they were as identifying knowledge critical to the decision. I mean, it sounds like there's identifying knowledge critical to the story, you know, assessing the decision maker's current knowledge or, you know, thinking about the audiences developing messages that, that, you know, close the gaps, and then also testing the message. And I thought that was an intriguing idea of, of thinking about how often are these messages developed mm-hmm. without any sense of testing and kind of what do people see or what do people hear. You may, it's not necessarily what you think they're hearing or seeing, but, but it's what you say. So, you know, how, how do you think about those risk communication steps as it applies to, to what Rosemary just raised? First, I would say that in this miserable period that we're in now in terms of communication, I think the press has really rescued us. I wouldn't want to be critical of of journalists. We have this really, you know, we're not getting a coherent, informative message from, from a coordinated source that will give us a feeling that we're in it together and we're working on the, working off of the same, same data. So I would not want to be critical of, of, of journalists. I think it really really save have, have really saved us. I mean, one of the more robust results in psychology is that people exaggerate how well they communicate. Hmm. Or oh. maybe you said that I think so maybe I'll try that again. One of the more robust one of the more robust results in psychology is that people exaggerate how well they understand one another and hence how well they communicate in both directions. So as we speak I think that I understand what you're after better than is actually the case and that I'm <laughs> closing the gap better than is actually actually the case. And uh, I hear you. I'm looking at you. I have a pretty good chance of seeing whether this is working. But you have people in an office someplace producing a message that they think other people want, 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 want to hear, giving it to somebody to give it good production values, with no way to get feedback from their from their audience, they're going to get it wrong. And that is the industry standard. People produce things they think other people need to know uh, and give it good production values and, and push it out. It's people who will write a large check for putting out promos will not spend the essentially zero dollars that mm-hmm. it takes to take a draft message Ask somebody from each of the diverse audiences that you hope to, to, to reach. Ask a few people from each audience to say, read this aloud. Tell me everything that comes into your mind. Mm-hmm. And people like myself who are in the communication development business, you are always surprised by you think things that you think are clear, they find muddled. Right. Things that yeah. you think are clear, they find clear, but they're interpreting in a completely... Okay other way think you think you're the good guy and they tell you why is does this idiot not respect me why are they telling me things that i already know and not the things that are gaps in my knowledge so the industry norm is is malpractice in not testing messages you're listening to Stats and Stories, and today we're talking with Carnegie Mellon's Baruch Fischoff. Baruch, so I have talked, I've, I've looked a lot at sort of the issue of communicating risk as it relates to sort of public health in development communication, and what a lot of those development communication studies 
often found out is when there was a failure of program around HIV AIDS or tuberculosis um, awareness, it all, there was a sort of a mismatch between the message and the culture. And I wonder, think as I'm listening to you talk, how important is understanding sort of the cultural melu that you are in as you craft messages about risk? I was recently on a, a National Academy Committee on Equitable Allocation of COVID-19 Vaccine. Oh. And we did two things in, 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 the, the, in the report that might be unintuitive to some people. One was we made a clear distinction between risk communication and health promotion. Oh, yeah. The job of risk communication is to get the, oh. get the facts and get the facts out. So mm-hmm. people want to know how safe and effective it is. People are going to want to know who gets the vaccine, uh, how equitably it, it was, how hard the distributors tried to reach people who are, who are hard, hard, hard to reach. And uh, we need to do the analysis, the data collection, the statistics, in order to find out how the system actually, actually works. And then we need to make that information available to people trusting them to make the right judgment whether it is right for them and right for their their community and their and their society and separately we need health promotion mm-hmm. where people are told this is what the doctors think you should do and the two feed off one another not everybody wants to make these decisions on their own about these health matters these health matters or others so they do want to know what you know what the health public health people know and and they want reassurance that they're not being left alone to figure this out themselves. Conversely, the better people understand it, the more they feel like they're being respected, the better, more likely they are to follow the health promotion recommendations. So that's one thing we did, make this clear distinction between sort of persuasive and non-persuasive yeah. communication. Yeah. Not unpersuasive, non-persuasive, okay. just giving you the facts. The second thing we did is we made a strong case that the distribution channels of information need to be as diverse as the populations that we are reaching. That that is, we need uh, librarians, people in community colleges, people from the historically black colleges and universities, the tribal and Hispanic-seeking organizations. They need to be involved in, in, in the process. They have a credibility in their local communities. They can get the tone right that somebody from the outside, however sympathetic they are, can't possibly get the tone right. So we need that kind of heterogeneous distribution system in order to get the vaccine to people. We also need it in order to get the information to people. Mm-hmm. You know, I, uh, in one of your articles, you, you wrote something I thought was, was really um, intriguing and important, was that we often see disagreement because of different goals, not different facts. And I, I, I find that to be a really, that's, that's a challenging statement. <laughs> I mean, although we sometimes find people that disagree on the facts as well, but, but even if they're willing to, ex- we have people that accept the same facts about, say, COVID or whatever situation we're in, that these different goals play out. Can, can you sort of expand a little bit on, on, on that idea? An example from the, the early days of COVID was the confusion that was created and remains regarding the efficacy of face masks. Oh. That... The evidence has not changed that much regarding the efficacy of face masks. But there were people at the beginning whose goal was to preserve a limited supply of the high-quality face masks for the, for the healthcare professionals and, uh, you know, broad, broadly defined because we were so 
poorly prepared and personal protective equipment. So they said, don't use face masks because their goal was to protect our healthcare professionals. But they didn't say, well, what kind of face masks were they talking about? At that time, there was no reason why they didn't advocate uh, homemade fabric face masks, which we, which we knew at that time had a reasonably good uh, chance of protecting both the individuals from the disease and protecting other people from individuals who had the disease. They were not perfect, but we knew from both observational studies and some laboratory studies and theoretical arguments that if you had a decent face mask and wore it appropriately, that was part of the kind of layered defense that we need need here. So they had a different goal, their tr- worthy goal, protecting health care uh, professionals who had not been protected by the system that that failed to provide them the equipment that, that they needed. But, but we sacrificed the other goal of the public that could have gotten the consistent message about face masks, which is as true was as true then as it is is now, even though there's somewhat more somewhat more more evidence. I want to ask you about a paper you wrote about evaluating science communication. And there's just this opening line of it that I think is so compelling, where you write, communicating science effectively can require an unnatural act. And then you say it's sort of collaborate, like bringing people across disciplines together to collaborate. Can you unpack what you're trying to say here about why bringing these people together is so important to getting science information out effectively? Yeah. One way to think about it is that there are four separate skill sets that you need for effective communication. So one is you need the subject matter experts, the people who know about the porosity of face masks, the size of aerosols, their dwell time in the environment, and, and, and so on. So you need to get the facts right. And then you need people who will distill those facts into those that are most relevant to people's decisions. So you don't get the fire hose that, I could, that scientists are always happy, happy to, give, to <laughs> give you. And that is statisticians, risk analysts, decision analysts who will boil down everything that would be nice to know to the few things that, that you need to know because you will lose your audience if you tell them things that are irrelevant. And, and rightfully so because you're not sensitive to them, then you need, you know, behavioral scientists who can make that information comprehensible to people, which I'm, I'm an optimist about that. I think that you can, with, if you do your work right, you can give people a good sense of how good the evidence is, what it tends to tell you in terms of the size of the effects, and then give them a mental model for how it works. And then you absolutely need the, the production people who will give the good production values, who will get it out, who will create the community network that you need in order to to disseminate it. So you really, you could just, if you think it through, you can imagine what happens if you miss any one of those, uh, those pieces. And then you need, um, you also need a general contractor <laughs> who will keep everybody in line. That is, you don't want you know, a technical expert making the language more convoluted in order to get it absolutely right. And you don't want a psychologist simplifying the science to more comprehensible and then and then misrepresenting the facts. So you need a tough hand who's going to run the, the whole, whole thing. Everybody's entitled to opinion, but only the people who really know that part of the business, uh, they get the final say. 
You know, I, I love the analogy that you had about the, the, you know, with microbiomes and gut level decisions. I mean, the, the idea of the importance of the, the variety of microbiota in our gut and the food we can eat, as well as then this idea of the variety of perspectives in our minds, the variety of evidence that we can digest. That was, that was brilliant. So I, oh. I, I really love that, that, that idea. And, you know, the, this idea of preparing ourselves to receive message, it seems like mm-hmm. that's embedded as part of this. So, so I'm going to ask you, how, help us, you know, how do we become better at receiving the messages that are coming, that are being produced, that, that, that are being produced in the news, that are being produced in, in, by government research labs, that are being produced by scientists of all flavors? Well, pay attention to the statistics class would be a good idea. <laughs> oh, they, nah, that's, that's never going to work. Nah, nah. <laughs> but... So there is this difference between uh, uh, sort of science communication, which you know, and and education, which gives us the. Ba- I mean, the more that we know, particularly if we have an intuitive mastery of it. So if I would sometimes fault our teaching, it's we're sometimes preparing people for the next course instead of preparing people for the world. So they're giving mm-hmm. we're giving them technical mastery of economics or statistics or signal detection theory or whatever, which prepares them for the next course, but doesn't necessarily come along with intuitive fluency of, of viewing the world in statistical in statistical terms. So we can do a better job in preparing people. So part of a Bayesian perspective would mm-hmm. be asking, what, what usually happens in this situation? And do I have any good reason to think that this particular situation will be any different? And do I have good enough information to to make my choice? So that's an intuitive perspective on something that you know that you know statisticians, you know economists will will teach you in your uh, in 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 your courses. So so if we do a better job of teaching so that people have an intuitive feeling for these things, we will help people. And of course they do have to pay attention in class. <laughs> I would say, so given that, that, you know, we're, we're, we're if we don't have that oppor- opportunity, so I would, I think shutting out the noise is really important. That is, there are, you know, each of us, you, know, you almost all, what you get, in the 24-hour news cycle or the 24-hour social media cycle is mostly noise. You know, the facts about COVID, they change very slowly. As we were saying earlier, pretty much know as much about the efficacy of face masks now as we did in March before they became an intense, uh, an intense topic. So you can watch TV to find out who the players are, who you can trust, what the politics are, because there is no natural way aggregation for that. But regarding the science, it changes very slowly. Each of us has a few science writers and sources who will aggregate it. They tell similar stories if they're good in somewhat different different ways. So I think checking, I think for the, for the science, I would just look at a few trusted sources and shut out the rest of the noise. It, shutting out the noise is also good. I think we have colleagues at uh, UC Irvine who have studied people's stress from public events. They have a longitudinal study of people's responses to the Boston Marathon bombing. 
and this is a uh, um, uh, Roxy Silver, Allison Holman, and Dana Garfin. And one of the, they found that the two best predictors of how stressed people are by that event and, and, and sort of related one are how vulnerable people are, are as persons. That mm-hmm. is, as, you know, does this strike a chord with them? Uh, are they already vulnerable to stresses? Does this threaten their job? And, and so on. And the second is how much TV they watch. Hmm. And and the specialty of of TV is is twenty four hour TV or social media is to keep you keep you upset and and watched and and to give you the feeling that you're going to learn something and you're not going to learn much of anything about about COVID about vaccines about treatment you will learn something about the political players and you know. Mm-hmm. Watch it for that. So I would say, you know, find a few good sources, check them, check them generally. So that's about the general science. Secondly, well, you want to know what does this mean for me? Right. Uh, so we're fortunate uh, in Allegheny County to have an outstanding public health department. They send out a message of of the disease toll every every morning at 11 if you don't want to want to get the feed you can check their website once or twice twice a twice a day they give you the statistics they're really competent they're in tune with their local local community and in the very first announcement uh, of the first i guess lockdown shutdown stay-at-home order in 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 march they said we're all in this together and we're going to pull through together. So they enunciated a social value that that is very important, and they have stayed the course in terms of that being the subtext of their of their messages. So, you know, we need to know the big picture. We also need to know the local picture, and a few few good sources on each of them, and then and then shut out the rest. Well, Baruch, that's all the time we have for this episode of Stats and Stories. Thank you so much for being here today. Oh, thank you for having me. I enjoyed, Thanks, enjoyed our conversation. Stats and Stories is a partnership between Miami University's Departments of Statistics and Media, Journalism, and Film and the American Statistical Association. You can follow us on Twitter, Apple Podcasts, or other places where you find podcasts. If you'd like to share your thoughts on the program, send your email to statsandstories at miamioh.edu or check us out at statsandstories.net. And be sure to listen for future editions of Stats and Stories, where we discuss the statistics behind the stories and the stories behind the statistics.